Turn in your Bibles, if you will, and let us resume the book of Hebrews. Uh, anybody found that book yet? In one of the most difficult passages, probably uh, in the New Testament, uh, to interpret. I don't think you would ever pick this passage uh, if you just wanted to, oh, I like to preach. You'd never pick this passage because it's uh, fraught with many views, many uh, uh, interpretations. So you ought to look at it so you could either be informed or further confused. Okay? Uh, I'm going to give you what I think it means, but I've been wrong on it many times. So maybe I'm wrong again. Does that give you confidence? I'm sorry. I'm just being honest with uh, the many, the plethora of views and understanding. We're going to come to a uh, chapter that he is, this book has about five to six warnings. Uh, and you've got to get the audience. Uh, who is he writing to? Is he writing to Luigi and the saints at Rome? Wake up. Who, who's he writing to? Uh, who do you think that is? Okay. But not everybody's saved because he, he's not omniscient. But his audience that he's talking, people that are associating in this particular local church, uh, some are Jews that are investigating, thinking it over. Uh, do I take Christ? Do I not take Christ? Some, obviously, believers there have received Christ. So, throughout this book, he's been giving warnings. He warns him in chapter 2, don't drift. Chapter 3, today if you hear his voice, believe him. Enter in. Don't be like the generation that came out on the Exodus, uh, saw the light, saw the cloud, ate the manna, but never did enter the promised land. They just, they, they were long for the trip, but they didn't have faith. They just, they never put faith in God. Uh, and he said they died in the wilderness. God knocked them off. Uh, now, let's pick up verse, uh, it's a big passage, but I want you to get the flow of the warning. Verse, chapter 5, verse 11. Let's begin there. He's been talking about Christ's priestly ministry in verses 1 through 10 of chapter 5. And he's going to resume that again in chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9. That's the big theme that's going to carry the book. But as he begins to talk about Christ is in the order of Melchizedek, that all of a sudden he noticed uh, this little film came over the eyes and ears of his hearers. And he says, about this, that is Christ and the order of Melchizedek, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. And the word means no push in the hearing. You're just not getting it. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, 
Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God, and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Three things I have us look at. Verses 11 through 14, a dangerous condition to be in, chapter 5. Dangerous condition. Then in verses uh, 1 through 3, I'd call it dangerous substitutes. Dangerous substitutes. And finally, uh, dangerous choice and dangerous consequences. What's the danger that he sees? He sees them the moment he starts talking of Christ and picking up his superiority and now likening him to a greater priesthood than the priesthood of Judaism, the priesthood of Aaron. The moment he begins to talk of that subject, he notices uh, a lack of perception in his hearers. You're getting bored. You don't get it. You've become sluggish in your hearing. You've been in this congregation a while, obviously, for you've been exposed to enough teaching and enough preaching that by this time you ought to be teaching this stuff. You ought to have grown up enough and that to have experienced this so that you're instructing others about the superiority of Christ, the wonder of Christ, his great priestly ministry, but instead you just linger in, I don't get it. I don't understand it. This thing about Christ, ah, I just don't get it. And so here are religious people, obviously, even to be impacted or even to show up in a congregation, but they don't understand what he's saying about Christ. And he says, I see this. You're in perpetual babyhood about the subject. You just don't, you don't go on. You don't get it. And we often use this to liken immature Christians. And there is an analogy there. Some of you have never grown up. You're still baby in your understanding. You just never grow. But this is talking to an audience. I'm warning you. 
I'm warning you. This is not a condition of growth, a condition of any further illumination, any further insight. Why have you become dull on me? Why aren't you getting it? That's what he's saying. Why aren't you getting this? I'm talking about the Christ of chapter 1, the Christ of chapter 2. I'm describing, but dismissed. You might as well go home because you're sleeping through it anyway. You don't get it. I want to do that a lot of Sunday mornings. uh, You're not getting it. And so, okay, I'm not getting it. You got any more to say? Yeah. Uh, Here's your problem. You're in a dangerous condition. You become dull to spiritual truth and spiritual words that I am describing Christ in the first 10 verses of 5, and I'll spend many other chapters describing. But you're already signed off. You've already checked out. You're bored. You don't get it. You're in a dangerous condition. And then he begins to describe them, and he begins to tell them the dangerous substitutes that they seem to be building their lives on. And he's really taking the things of Judaism that a good Jew of the day would have had as a part of their basic understanding. And they would have grown up with it. And listen to what he goes on to say. These dangerous substitutes that you are relishing, clinging to, but Christ bores you. The subject of Christ you're not getting. Watch what he says. Therefore... Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ, ABCs, basics, and go on to maturity. Now, that, that says, what do you mean leave it? You've heard about Messiah in Isaiah 9, 6, Micah 5, 1, he'll be born in Bethlehem. Now, the seed of the woman will bruise the head. The Old Testament, you've got the Old Testament promise of Messiah, You've heard promises about Messiah is going to come. I'm telling you, he came. I'm telling you, he's now got a priestly ministry on high. You know basic things about Christ. Your rabbis have told you that. They don't understand Isaiah 53, but you, you Jews that grew up on Messiah's coming, Messiah's coming, the king is coming. They grew up with that. And he's saying, you've got to go on beyond your present understanding and what you've been told about Christ. Leave the ABCs, learn the rest of the alphabet. Then he begins to mention things that was a part of a Jewish believer's life. Look at this, things like this. uh, Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. What did they do when they did wrong works? They could bring a sacrifice. I'm sorry. Repentance. It was part of Judaism. Uh, Day of atonement. Nothing new. Nothing uniquely Christian about this. Uh, And faith toward God. Well, what was Abraham known for? Faith or unbelief? I'm a Jew. I've grown up here, and you ought to trust God. You ought to have faith in God. Good, good. Will you have faith in his Messiah? Will you put faith in Jesus Christ? Another subject. 
They already celebrated those heroes of chapter 11 and mighty feats of God and how God delivered them. That's part of their heritage. Sometimes the more religious exposure you have, the easier it is for you to miss Christ because you start putting all your confidence. Well, I went through catechism. Do you know Christ? I was baptized as an infant. Do you know Christ? Uh, I was bar mitzvah. Do you know Christ? Well, you're counting on this. You're counting on the, I've had people, I was an altar boy. I was this and that. I'd had different functions in the church, and he's telling them the same thing. You, you're laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, and instruction about washings. Now, what's this washings? Well, they had instructions how to wash about everything. Get clean, do this. If you touch anything unclean, everything, water, absolutions, uh, water, all the time. Not water baptism. This is washing, ceremonialism. You're all caught up in all the rituals to get ceremonially clean as though it gets you clean before God. And it's doing nothing about your relationship with God, but it's very religious. It's very external, ceremonial. Uh, the laying on of hands. Well, have anyone ever read the book of Leviticus? They laid hands on the animals. They laid hands on the priest. They were used to, when you lay hands, you identify with it. They laid hands on their kings, on their prophets. Uh, it was a part of Judaism. We practice it. We lay hands on people to be identified with them, to bless. And so, that was all a part of their heritage. Not bad, but okay. So, you're all into laying on of hands and ceremonial washings and ABCs of Messiah. You've got all that going. Oh, some of you even believe in the resurrection of the dead. Do you remember if you just read the book of Acts in our daily reading? Paul, to get out of getting lynched, said, hey, I'm being tried for the believing in the resurrection of the dead. And he spread the mob up between the Sadducees and Pharisees. Pharisees believed the resurrection of the dead. Sadducees didn't. So, hey, they had groups of Jews that said, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. Good. The prophets said there would be. So, okay, you got that. Eternal judgment. Daniel 12, God's going to judge. You believe that? Good. But it's not good enough. It's dangerous. It's religious ritualism, ceremonialism, and externalism that insulates you from knowing the true and living God. And some of you grew up pure pagan. You didn't know anything. That's not good, but sometimes you don't have as much religiosity to throw off. You're starting out, you don't know anything, and sometimes you're more teachable. Not necessarily. Others have grown around much more religious relics. Uh, I mean, you'll get people, well, this doesn't feel churchy enough. What doesn't feel churchy? The building. What do you mean? I'm, I'm looking for 
artistry, and we could use some, God knows. Uh, I'm looking for things that are religious tokens. Uh, where are some idols? Where are some fonts? Where can you wash hands? Where, what, what's that got to do with it? The Reformers and the Puritans, their buildings were so plain, only white walls as a whole, just sometimes pews that might be, you said, just on a plank that sits. Has anyone ever gone to church where all you sat on was a plank or a bench that just went no back to it? You see, in other words, they got away from everything that was external stimuli to religious awe. And sometimes people will complain of our tradition because it could be hang loose. You know, we start at 9.05 and you're still out talking. Well, if you go to some other church, you've come, you're used to genuflecting, kneel by the pew, get your mind, boom, 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 get in a mood. We come in, knocked off the last of the donut. You know, it's a total different atmosphere. Let me tell you, honey. It ain't one I like. When my sister was alive, she'd be playing the piano 20 minutes before the service, and you walked into hearing her play. We're getting ready. We didn't just start at 9.05. But we're waiting on you, and we're waiting on them. Because you got in the mood through music and singing, that type thing. So these people have all these substitutes for the real thing. And they're, they like that. They like that. You're talking about something we don't get. Jesus as high priest. Now he says, let me tell you, you're in danger. You're in danger. And let me tell you what God has been exposing you people to. This first century, second century Jews, many of them had lived through the book of Acts. They've, they're hearing this writer uh, maybe exposed to the apostles, exposed to some of the most powerful church life you'll ever hear about, healings, miracles, apostolic preaching, apostolic signs, apostolic wonders. No generation had any greater exposure to the works of God in the church than this generation. This is written around 50, 55 A.D., John, the beloved, is going to live till 90 A.D. John, the apostle, is going to write the book of Revelation in 90 A.D. These people have been exposed. You're hanging out in a Jewish Christian community, and we have seen God do great, great things. Now, let me describe you, and let me see what you're doing. You, you don't get the message. You're not following it. You're over here. You're all into your Judaistic ABCs, play things in comparison to the real thing. You see, Paul, or rather the writer, is trying to get them to leave the old covenant, to leave the old shadows and come to the substance, the real thing, Christ. Christ is God's best, and you're being bored with the subject. You're not getting it, but you still want to do baptisms. You still want to do washings. You still want to lay on your hands? That is of no profit next to Christ. No benefit whatsoever. You want to count beads? You want to burn candles? You want to pray for saints? You want a priest to anoint you? Uh, you want a great 
Bach and organ music to create mood. You need idols. Wait, wait. What's all of this got to do with him? Even I met a sister one time and said, well, I want to know if you've got a gospel choir. I said, well, we do, but we also got the gospel. We've got the gospel. Have you heard of the gospel? And I'm sure she had. She had never believed it. But she wanted a certain sound when she came to church, or wasn't church. Yeah, yeah. Do you know him? Would you be bored if we talked about Christ? Now, listen to how he describes him. And here's the issue. Here's the, here's the argument now. The argument in verses 4 through 6 is this. Is this describing born-again believers? Or is it broad enough that it's not necessarily born-again believers? Here's the issue, too. Are believers uh, taught in John and other books that they will be kept forever? Oh, you all amen that. Oh, yeah. Ooh, ooh. Once in grace, always in grace, folks. Okay. What do you do with these warnings? And let me tell you what expositors have done. If you read a guy like Kenneth Wiest, he says the warning's hypothetical. It's just... He's just warning you. I know it doesn't apply to any of you, but I want to warn you anyway. I think it's a little weak. Uh, the view I grew up on is uh, true believer can lose their salvation. And many of us, that's where we grew up. That if you commit this kind of sin, which is over and beyond, this is some extraordinary sin, because even in the tradition that I grew up in, that you can be born again and get lost again, did anyone ever hear of revivals and trying to get the backslider back? i sure you did. We grew up, we had to have revivals to keep getting those backsliders back. Huh? Just a tradition. We never said, you have sent away your day of grace. Thank God. You backslid and Jesus comes, you're lost. That's what we taught. So you better get back while you have a chance. And if you don't, you're lost, right? Okay? Uh, so this kind of warning is even tough for people who believe you can lose yourself because this is an impossible road back. You can't get back once you do this. Some would call this the blaspheming of the Spirit. It's scary passage no matter. Uh, I also have the view that comes out of Dallas uh, Seminary, that he's telling them to go on to maturity, and that's what's happening is you have fallen away from maturity, and it's impossible for you to be saved again. So what you need to do is pick up your cross and start following. You resume your journey. And uh, I, I've held that view. I held the view you could lose your salvation. Uh, I've been wrong in so many ways, or at least been sincerely had many views. But let's look at these words. This is what he says they've been exposed to. Uh, you were once enlightened. And the word enlightened, some would take it to be, ah, they were saved. But the word was also used of uh, just someone that became mentally aware. It was used of 
a student learning. The light came on. I learned it. You've been enlightened in the exposure you've had to the gospel and to this local church that he's writing. And so you've been exposed. You've seen God. Uh, you've seen God change your neighbors. Uh, you've been enlightened. You're not in the dark about Christianity, Jesus Christ, where he plays the central role. So you've been enlightened in that sense. You've tasted, which means to simply you've experienced many things that were straight from God. Uh, but tasting doesn't mean that you swallowed it. Uh, it was used of Christ on the cross. He tasted the vinegar, but he didn't drink it. Found out what it was, and he had said, I thirst. So they gave him the gall mixed with vinegar. No, no more. And he said, you've sampled Christianity. Most of you here, just the very fact that you're here today, you've all tasted of Christianity. You've been around Christians. Uh, you've heard preachers. Whatever your exposure's been, I've tasted of it. I've been exposed. I've been enlightened. Then he goes on to say, you are partakers of the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's an interesting word. That word partakers can't be the authentic thing, that you became partakers of Jesus Christ. But it was also used of business partners. It was used of Peter's fishing partners. So they were associated with him. They were partners with him. And so it's the idea you have been in association with people who claim to know God. You've been in association with Christians, Christian Jews. So you've been exposed, you've been enlightened, you've tasted, you've hung around with folks that know God. Kind of like Judas. Matter of fact, Judas was the church treasurer. You could actually be on the board and not know God. You could be the pastor and not know God. Anymore, I say, I'd rather be a Christian than to be a pastor. A lot of folks, pastors aren't going to heaven. You don't know that? Are you that dumb? Are you that naive? Please, don't be dumb. And quit sending your money to crooks. Support that which you know is doing God's business. At least you know where the money's going around here. I mean, you're getting air conditioned. Did you ever grow up where you didn't get air conditioned when it got hot? Just open the windows? Oh, we're brats. Keep on. Uh, you tasted the Word of God. You heard the preaching. And, and here's something interesting. You tasted uh, the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come. What do you mean? We saw miracles. We saw the lame healed. Our brothers and sisters in this church, who knows who they were going to church with, maybe a Philip that went down to Samaria and led the Ethiopian to the Lord, uh, laying on of hands, miracles. Hey, you've been getting a foretaste of what Messiah will be doing during his kingdom. You, you read the book of Acts, friend, and you're getting a foretaste of what's yet to come. More is coming. What he's doing with this church in Acts, he's going to be doing in the kingdom, healing, conquering, uh, just 
exercising righteousness on the earth. So, so you've been privileged. You've been having a ringside seat. Hey, you men stoning Stephen, you've heard the word of God. You've tasted of his message. You should have been enlightened. He, he told you our history and how it led up to Christ. You've seen miracles through this man. Is it, it's not possible to reject God after that much exposure, is it? Well, if you can hang out with God for three years and still say crucify him, you must be able to go to church for years and say crucify him. What, was Judas ever moved by any of the sermons? Did he see the feeding of the multitude? Uh, now, you've got to remember, he's already in chapter 3 and 4 warned these listeners, be careful. Don't be like the generation that saw the exodus, who ate the manna, tasted, who lived under the light that God gave them at night, the fire by night, the cloud by day. They were all experiencing this. They were all observing this when the snakes bit and they were dying. And Moses puts up a brazen rod. They saw their own children healed. But it didn't mean they ever had faith in God. And he said, for most of them, they had no faith in God. And God said, you shall not enter the land. It is scary that you can go to hell after so much exposure to God. We had a man, he's come to this church, a nice man. And uh, he went to our home Bible study groups. He was faithful to Sunday. He was this and that. There was not an ounce of hypocrisy in him. If you ask him, uh, hey, Gary, uh, have you put faith in Christ? No, I haven't. He's just straightforward. Uh, no, not a obstinate attitude. He's just straight. No, no, I haven't. Well, why are you hanging out with us? We didn't say that. I like you folks. You've been good to my children. You're good to my family. I like the music. Why do they say the music? Why not the preacher? Uh, and I, I like this, and I like that. I'm treated well. I, I just like to be with you. I said, well, that's okay, isn't it? It's a nice group to hang out with. As a whole, we don't steal a lot of purses. We're trying to get you to give something out of them, but we don't steal them. It's kind of a nice environment. And he was with us in some dumpy environments, believe me. Eventually, is killed through an accident. As far as I know, never took Christ. Got to see, enjoyed, was a gentleman was a nice, hardworking man. I don't have one negative thing to say about him, except why didn't you take Christ? Why wasn't Christ? I, I could blame him. I don't preach well enough, and that'd be easy. I obviously couldn't paint the picture well enough for him to want Christ. He didn't meet enough authentic believers that wet his appetite. He, he, he liked folks. I mean, he, he was a nice man. I went to his funeral. But while I was there, I thought, oh, Gary, would to God Christ look good enough for you to want. But he didn't. Now, he says to these people, if you have this kind of exposure, 
and you decide you don't want Christ and you want to fall away and repudiate the associations and repudiate what you're hearing, it will be impossible to renew you. And it's the idea is while you are publicly crucifying Christ and putting him to public shame, the idea is they are going public and saying, he's not Messiah. I don't want him. They could even say, I see my Christian Jewish friends being persecuted, cursed, fired from their jobs, saying they're not Jews. By the way, when you become a Christian, you're still a Jew. You don't lose your ethnicity. Because the famous lie that the rabbis keep telling a Jew, if you become a Christian, you lose your ethnicity. You don't. You just found the true high priest, the true king of Israel. You become the completed Jew. You found Messiah. That's what happens. Don't be afraid to talk to your Jewish friends. We care for them. We want them to know Christ. But he said it's impossible, impossible for you to have this much exposure and then publicly denounce him. He is not the Christ. Crucify him. Crucify him. I don't want him. He's not the Messiah I want. He's not the king I expected. Crucify him. Crucify him. And publicly, he says, they are shaming him, disowning him, and saying he, it's a cursed thing no matter how much I've been exposed to, how much enlightenment, how much tasting, how much I've seen. I think it's all of hogwash. He is a curse. Nice man, taught a good sermon on the mount, did a lot of good deeds, but I will not have him for my Messiah or Savior. It will be impossible if you choose to crucify him and reject him and shame him and disown him. It will be impossible for you to ever be renewed. You can't be crucifying and ever be renewed by him. Make up your mind. Then he gives an illustration. He gives the illustration. We have some soil. That's the common thing. We have rain. But we have two different crops. Some bears fruit, and God said, I can bless that. The other bears thorns and thistles, and God says, this is nigh unto a curse and divine judgment. What is he saying? The gospel rain goes out. It falls on the human heart. And in some hearts, faith springs up and fruit springs up, just like in the parable of the soils. And God says, you're blessed, you're saved, I'll bear my fruit through you. Others hear the gospel, hear the same exposure, and their product is nothing but thorns and thistles. And Jesus said, you will know a life by what it produces. You will know a tree by the kind of fruit it produces. So he's saying in the illustration, you're either blessed of God, bearing fruits under righteousness, or you're under a divine curse. 
You've heard the same gospel. You've had the same exposure, but you cannot treat lightly the Son of God and vote for a re-crucifixion and God save you. Now, you may be here without Jesus Christ. You say, well, man, I've never said he wasn't God. I've never said I don't want him totally. I'm just not ready now. And that's a different category. It might be more dangerous because you think you've got forever. But this was a, a radical break. I've had enough, and I want to turn away, and I want to disown him. And he said, if that is your choice, you will uh, commit an irreversible decision with eternal consequences. I, uh, reading the book, The Case for Faith by Lee Strobel, where in the introduction, it's a book of apologetics, 10 reasons we ought to be, believe the faith, believe Christianity. But in it, he begins a story that is fascinating, and it tells about a preacher that grew up with Billy Graham in the 40s. His name was Charles Templeton. And Templeton and uh, Billy Graham uh, preached together for Youth for Christ, preached all over this country. Uh, Templeton was said to be the far better preacher, could go two and a half hours and hold a uh, college audience spellbound. He was so brilliant. Uh, he began to have questions and doubts about the faith. Being such a brilliant guy, he began to think uh, the biblical view or the Christian, Christian views were immature, not intellectual enough. And uh, he wrote a book called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And he says, uh, the Christian faith is outdated, demonstrably untrue, and in their various manifestations, uh, deleterious to individuals and to society, detrimental to them. Um, he, in his book, he describes the horrors of Alzheimer's and says, how could there be a loving God and ever allow such a disease? Lee Strobel is interviewing him in this article uh, in his home up in Canada. Uh, he left the ministry. He split with Billy Graham. Henrietta Mears, the Christian education director at Hollywood Press, was the one that captured Billy Graham when he was wrestling with whether the Bible was the Word of God. And he went to Forrest's home in Southern California, had a wrestling match with God, and he got on his knees and he said, my mind's not great enough to answer all the criticisms all the doubts, and all the uh, uh, scientific attacks on the Bible. But as he knelt at Forrest's home, he said, I'm too simple a man to answer all these questions. I simply say, I will, by faith, take you at your word. I will pledge to keep the Bible even when I can't answer all the questions. What's well, quite interesting from that mountaintop prayer meeting, he began an L.A. crusade, which Randolph Hearst covered that, 
crusade. And then Billy Graham became a household word. He fought over, will I preach the Bible as the Word of God, or will I let Charles Templeton talk me out of my faith? He made that choice. Templeton left the ministry, uh, went back to writing and pursuing his own career. He's now being interviewed at the age of 83. And as he talks to Strobel, he said, what turned you? What made you turn the corner and, and give up the faith? He said, it was a photograph on the cover of Life magazine in which a black woman in northern Africa was pictured there holding her dead baby because of a devastating drought going through the country. And as I looked and saw that woman holding that dead baby, I asked, could there be a loving God in the universe? Only he can give rain. Where is God when a woman is holding a dead baby when he could solve it? And he said, I decided I could not preach this kind of a God. I could not preach a God that allowed that woman to lose her baby. And so, uh, as he's questioned, ask him if he ever, he didn't become an atheist, he became an agnostic. And uh, he went on further to say, I can't understand why God would permit people with Alzheimer's. Come to find out, Charles Templeton was diagnosed with Alzheimer's when he was 80. And as he discusses this incredible interview, if you'd read the case for faith, you'll get it all. Uh, he asked him uh, a question after all of the things. And he said, I will not change my mind. I'm settled. I'm too old to go back. He finally said, let me ask you this, Charles. What do you think of Jesus Christ as a person? He's the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? You sound like you really care about him. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 and he stuttered, I know it may sound strange, but I have to say I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say that was some emotion. Well, yes, everything good I know, every decency I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People think of him that way, but they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed. He was this and that. He was wonderful, wonderful. Oh, my goodness, yes. I've tried to emulate him, but I failed and failed. He's the most. And he stopped. In my view, he declared, he is the most important human being who has ever existed. Templeton then asked, and if I may put it this way, what do you really think about him? Templeton broke. I must say, and he began to cry, I miss him. 
I miss him. With that, the tears begin to flow. And after enough, the 83-year-old man concluded our discussion saying, I've rejected Christianity and I miss Jesus. Every man is going to miss Jesus eventually if he rejects him because he's the most wonderful thing God ever did. He's God's best. And you see, when you don't take God's best, God is left to give you his worst. And hell is his worst. His best is in Jesus. And that's why Hebrews is written. Why, why reject the best and live with the consequences of the worst? Jesus is warning these people, why do you think I gave you all this wonderful exposure but to love me, serve me, bow before me? Why go back to relics? Why go back to religiosity? Why go back to baptisms, washings, relics, externalism? Why go back to Aaron? Why go back to animal sacrifices? Why go back to a priesthood with an ephod that doesn't know anything about your problems? Why don't you go to Jesus? Jesus. Jesus is Christianity. Not all the flawed people in these pews. If I didn't love Jesus, I couldn't stand you. And you couldn't stand me. Don't fake it. We're not lovely people. He's the one that makes us love. He's the one that does the change. Jesus is what makes people, you start loving people, and you even start caring about a woman with a dead baby in her arms. Only Jesus and his love flowing through us can make us embrace even those who don't know him, even those who hate him. We want to love them to the cross if we can, for we want them not to see God's worst. We want them to receive God's best, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we thank you for your word. It's sobering. It is uh, eternal. Uh, I quake to think that I could have been a Charles Templeton. My heart aches for the man's uh, desperation, pain, I wonder, Father, do we have anyone here today, they've heard the gospel, they've associated, been around believers, they've seen God do many wonderful things through the lives of those they know that know Christ, but yet they've never said, Jesus, I want you as my own Savior. Jesus, I want you. I want to receive you. I want to believe in you. You are the most wonderful thing God has ever given this world. I receive him by faith. I don't seek to earn him. I'm not clinging to religious relics, baptisms, catechisms, works, money, churchianity. I come to Christ, you Christ. And I confess, could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Jesus, I come. Jesus, I come. Are you here? What keeps you? Why do you risk your eternal state? 
All I could do, I cannot save you. Hear me well, but I can plead with you. I plead with you on his behalf. Why do you keep gambling with your soul and saying, another day, another time? No, no, no. For you, it might be this is your final day. I don't have the authority to say that, but it might be. You don't know how many days you have. How are you doing? What have you done with Christ? Have you been exposed, 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 exposed? Trying to get a better preacher, a better sermon, a better exposure, better music. What keeps you from receiving the best Christ? The best, the best has already been given for you. God's asking you, receive him, and I'll give you eternal life. I'll bless your life in ways you cannot imagine. You must receive him. Exposure to him doesn't save you. It's receiving him, believing on him, calling on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord, and he will save you. That's what God's word said. May God work in your heart. May you not just like the environment here, like the kindness of a wonderful congregation. May you come to see your need of Christ. And you, you right there, I want you, Christ. I want you. Only you could tell him. Only you could express. If you don't want him, don't be, I say this, I don't know. If you don't want him, he won't be forced on you. You can see God's worst, but never say he didn't give you his best. He gave us his best in Jesus. Receive him.